What does the Bible say about, is there any such thing as an unforgivable sin? It's the cross-culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Life is hard at times, is it not? Life is tough. Life is difficult. Life stinks at times. But you and I have the assurance that one day He is going to break through those clouds and He's going to bring an end to all this mess that mankind has been able to make of the world. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. With those opening words from Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, we come to the most anticipated event in the life of the church, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This has been it for the church for 2,000 years. The church has been expecting the return of Christ. And, and, and well, we should. We should live in a state of expectancy. And for 2,000 years, this has been what has gotten us up out of bed in the morning and pushed us on towards bringing God glory. In our year-long study of the book of Revelation, we've already experienced the rapture of the church way back in chapter 4, where Jesus comes in the clouds and calls his followers up to him. But today, Pastor Clay is going going to walk us through our Lord's bodily return to earth. This is not a social call, okay? This clearly is not sweet baby Jesus. This is the sovereign Lord who is coming back, and He is coming back to establish His kingdom. As Pastor Clay is going to show us, Jesus is coming back for two reasons. One, to put an end to the Antichrist and his army by destroying them in the final battle of the earth, known as the Battle of Armageddon. And two, Christ is coming back to establish his own earthly kingdom that will be a time of peace and prosperity for God's people. Now here's Pastor Clay with today's exciting message. God's Word is filled with the promises that Christ will be back and that He will return to establish His kingdom on this earth. We've been a year, almost a year now, uh, studying the book of Revelation. Today we come to chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, which records what will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's read it together this morning. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then 
I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. With him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone." And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Wow. It's a lot to get to in the latter half of this chapter. And uh, we're going to kind of dive right into it this morning and and work our way through these verses as we go. but if you, were, if you were with us, if you've been with us through this study uh, in, in chapter 11, as we break into this and we find out we see this rider coming out on a white horse. And if you've been with us in this study, you may remember that this is not the first time we've seen a rider on a white horse. Way back in chapter 6, really at the beginning of the tribulation period, a rider came out then on a white horse. And I identified that rider as the Antichrist, that he came out... Uh, as the text says, to, to conquer the earth. And the, the symbolism of the white horse is, is historically the, when, when a leader would conquer a, a region, he would, he would ride in in a white horse symbolizing his, his total victory. And in, in chapter 6, this rider comes out to conquer the earth, which the Antichrist does at the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, here in chapter 19, at the end of the tribulation period, here comes the true Christ riding out on a white horse, if you will, and he's coming out to conquer. He's coming back out to establish. He's coming back to set up his kingdom, which he has promised over and over and over again in Scripture. The first time he came, he came meek and lowly. The first time he came, he came, as Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The second time he comes, it will be very, very different, ladies and gentlemen. The Antichrist's kingdom uh, was built on, on deception and on deceit, and it was characterized by unrighteousness. Christ, when he returns, as it says here in verse 11, uh, he is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Complete opposite of Antichrist. And his kingdom shall be one established in righteousness. I was thinking about that this morning. You know, one of the questions that people always ask is, well, what about those people that have never heard the name of Jesus? Now, I've addressed that issue before in our Q&A time, and I'm always happy to address it with anybody. But the ultimate answer is this. You know what? God is a God that is just. God is a God that is righteous. And you don't have to worry about it. Whatever God does, he'll do in complete righteousness and complete justice. It will be right in how God works And handles every situation. In verse 12 it says his eyes are a flame of fire. It symbolizes his purity. It symbolizes the purity of Christ. And the fact that nothing escapes his gaze. You know you and I see things. I say this all the time to people. You and I see things through our own set of lenses don't we? 
We see things um, based on our own perceptions, based on our past experiences. Uh, Maybe somebody burned us and so we're a little less trusting. Maybe somebody abused us and so uh, we're we're a little more cautious. Maybe uh, whatever it is. But we tend to see things based on our emotions, based on our experiences, based on our circumstances. And those can sometimes cloud the picture that we see. I'm so grateful that, that Christ's eyes, when he comes back, are a blaze of fire that, that he sees in purity and he knows exactly what the situation is in each and every one of our lives. On his head are many uh, diadems or, or crowns. It symbolizes his, his authority. It's the diadem, it's the ruling crown, and it's not just one, he has many. It, it, it's, it's, it's symbolizing the fact that, that he is large and in charge, that he is over all of this and that it's not in question, that he is, he is over his kingdom, he is over his creation, he is over those who are his, that he has purchased with his own blood. He's wearing crowns, symbolizing his authority. And then it says, he has a name written on him, which no one knows, Except himself. That's strange, isn't it? Well, since, since it tells us nothing about the name, there's really not a lot to say in speculation about the name, except that I will say this, and this is mine. I, did, I, I didn't read anybody else that, that, uh, that said this, but I think, if nothing else, the very, po- the very fact that uh, John points it out to us, that he has this name that nobody knows except himself, uh, I'm of the belief that if nothing else, it speaks to us and it tells us about the fact that you and I will never uh, be able to realize all that God is. That this name that nobody knows symbolizes the very fact that God is more than you and I will ever realize, more than you and I can ever comprehend. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. We can know him. Aren't you glad we can know God? Uh, We can know him personally. And and that that relationship is so exciting to me. And I'm growing. And I I confess to you, I'm growing in that relationship. And I'm learning. And I I don't always get it right. And I don't always hear God uh, as clearly as maybe I'd like to hear him. And I'm growing in that. I can know him. And I can know him personally. And I can grow in that relationship with him. And I believe that in eternity we'll know him even more deeply than we know him now. But I am of the belief that we will never fully comprehend all that God is. For the sheer fact that he is God and we're not. He is all powerful and all knowing and everywhere present. And we are none of those things. He is alpha and omega beginning and end. And we are not. He is infinite and we are finite. It speaks of the mystery of God and the fact that that he is so much beyond what we can even comprehend. Then in verse 13... Uh, There's this wonderful statement that says he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, uh, there's differences of opinion on this. Some people believe that the the robe dipped in blood is his own blood and that it symbolizes the cost of our freedom. That that you and I did not save ourselves. If, If we are saved by God's grace, it is by his grace. That if we've been forgiven, if we're in right relationship with God, it is only because of what God has done for us, not what we can do to please God. And the, and the blood on his robe symbolizes the fact that his blood was shed for us and that, that it brought to us our freedom. And I, to that I would say praise God. 
But some people believe that the blood on his robe symbolizes the, the, the blood of his enemies and that it's actually his enemy's blood that's on his robe and it therefore symbolizes his complete and total victory over his enemies and ours. Personally, I'm okay with either one of those. I'm okay with the idea of both of those. There's a reminder to us that his blood was shed for us and so great a salvation has come to us as a result of what Christ did for us. He shed his blood, but also that made it possible for us to have victory over our enemies, the ultimate enemy being death. I'm okay with it being both. Also in verse 13, notice it says, uh, and his name is called the word of God. Now, this is not the first time that John has used this, this name, the Word of God, to refer to Jesus. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, in John's gospel account, the very opening words of John's gospel in John chapter 1, we find this. Maybe you've read this before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14, this astounding statement, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the logos. He is the knowledge. And he took on flesh. Uh, by the way, can I just remind that just speaks to the fact that, 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 that God's written word imparted to us and given to us uh, becomes that much more valuable in, in our sight, or, or certainly it should. It is through God's word that we, that we grow in that relationship that I moment, mentioned a few moments ago. It's through God's word that we begin to, to understand who he is and, and all that he has for us and what his plans are, it, it's, it's through his word. I was thinking about this this morning too. I have through the years heard of, read about, and counseled numbers of people who have fallen into immorality in their lives. Maybe it was marital infidelity. Maybe it was whatever. There, there can be, you know, myriads of things. I have never known of one single person Never one single person that would say, yeah, I, I fell into immorality. I, I, I cheated on my wife or my husband. I, I uh, had sex outside of marriage. I, uh, I did this. I, I did that. W- whatever it might be. I've never known of one single person that would say that and say, but boy, I, I, was, just, I was so deep in God's word. At the time, I was really meditating on God's word, and, and I just don't know how this happened. N- never one. I've never known a person uh, or a couple uh, that, that if they were committed to the word of God and were pouring it into their lives on a daily basis, that we're not strong and shielded from the enemy that comes against it. I, I just can't say to you enough that you must pour into this and let it pour into you. And if you don't, you, you, you do so at your own peril. You go out into the world, you risk your own life at your own peril because you or I are too busy or we don't understand what we read, or it's too boring, or it's, no, it's, it's the Word of God. Let me get off my soapbox there. <laughs> Let's go back to the sermon. 
Verse 14. Verse 14, we find out he's, he's coming back. It's already established in verse 11, he's coming back. But verse 14, we find out he's not coming back alone. Watch this. Verse 14 says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, if you were here last week, when we started in chapter 19, we were introduced to somebody in verse 8 that was dressed in white and fine linen. And we established who that was. And that was who? Do you remember? It was the church, right? I mean, you all remember it, I'm sure. <laughs> it was the church. that The fine linen, the ones robed in the, in the white, clean, fine linen, symbolized the church. Not the steeple, not the building, but the body of believers. The people who've committed their life to Jesus Christ and who are following after him. Those are those ones that were seen in heaven. And now we find out in verse 14, they're coming back with him. And they're riding on White horses too. Cowboys for Jesus. Giddy up cowboy and cowgirls. Yeehaw. That's awesome. I don't know if y'all like riding horses or not, but when, when, when I was a kid, um, I was visiting my, my grandparents one time, and my, my grandfather owned a ranch. And uh, uh, I was with him one day where he, when he went out to where the, the ranch hands were, and they were rounding up cattle and, uh, and branding them, you know, and they all, they're all on their horses and all this stuff. I mean, it was, it was cool. And, uh, and they're, they're branding cattle. And my grandfather and uh, the foreman of his ranch, a man named Norman Stokes, uh, apparently decided it would be a good idea to put me up on Norman's horse. Now, I'm, I'm seven or eight years old, okay? I'm, I'm somewhere in that area, seven, eight years old. Uh, my pao, that's what I called him, pao, and... Um, and Norman apparently decided it would be a good idea to put me up on Norman's horse. This huge, humongous, gigantic, enormous, incredibly tall horse. Now, I, I had a pony. Uh, I'd, I'd ridden a pony, but I had never been up on a full-grown horse before. You know, a horse can sense fear. A horse can sense fear, which I had a great deal of at that moment. And they no sooner put me in, in that saddle than that horse bolted. Man, I mean, he took off like he's running the Kentucky Derby or something. And I'm holding on to that saddle horn for all I can. And I'm, but it's just a matter of time before I go flying off because I can't even reach the stirrups. You know, I'm, just, I'm seven or eight years old and that horse is just getting it, man. And I know it's just a matter of time before I fall off. And sure enough, I went flying off. But fortunately for me, I landed in a bull hole. Y'all know what a bull hole is? A bull hole is a hole that a bull makes. <laughs> a, a bull will dig in the ground and dig up the, the soil and then lay in it. I mean, and, and big bulls make big holes. And, and it would, they would turn up, I guess, because they, it was softer. It was better than laying on the hard ground. They'd, they'd dig it up and soften the sand, and, and, and they would lay it. Fortunately for me, I landed right in a bull hole as I went flying off of the horse and didn't break anything other than my pride. Because Norman's daughter, Katrina, was there, who was the same age as me, and she was cute. She was there, and she's on her horse, and she's not having any problems at all. She's just sitting there. I'm sure she's looking at me like, who is this kid? So I, I don't know if you like riding horses or not, but apparently uh, we, we're going to get used to it. <laughs> the symbolism is that we're coming out, and we're coming with him, and we're coming out to conquer. Now, let's look at verse uh, 15. And 16. Um, there's a lot 
in verse 15 and 16, but, but let, me just, let me just say this first. Uh, from, verse, from verse 15, this idea from his mouth come a sharp sword so that we may strike down the nations who rule them with a rod of iron, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Verse 15 makes it clear, ladies and gentlemen, that this is not a social call, okay? This is not a social call as Jesus is coming back. Uh, this is not, and I don't mean this to be irreverent, I, I hope it's not, but this clearly uh, is not uh, sweet baby Jesus. This is the sovereign Lord who is coming back, and he is coming back to establish his kingdom, to rule his creation and those that he has purchased with his own blood. You know, in, in, in verse 11, he, he's called faithful and, and true in verse 12, uh, he has the name which, which no one knows. In verse 13, he's called the, the Word of God. And in verse 16, he's King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the exalted one. He is the one who is worthy of praise. And he is the one who is coming back to establish his kingdom. And then in verse 17, really through the end of the chapter, you have uh, this record of a battle that we originally came across and, and preliminarily discussed in chapter 16, the battle of Armageddon. This last final great battle that comes out. And listen, I, I mean, we all read it a moment ago. It is very graphic, isn't it? In, in the detail and in, 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 in what's going on here. It's very graphic. But he is the Christ. He's the king. And he, listen, oh, for generations and generations and generations, he has put up with the rebellion of man. But the age of man, in Revelation chapter 19, the age of man is coming to an end. The reign of the Antichrist is coming to an end. And the establishing of the true Christ and his kingdom is coming. And it's coming just as sure as anything I can tell you. Um, speaking of the Antichrist, look at, how, look at what ends up with him in, in verse 20 and, and 21. The text says, And the beast was seized, and, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. They have deceived countless numbers of people into believing that following Antichrist is better than following the true Christ. The irony of it is, is the greatest deception they, they performed was on themselves. Because apparently they deceived themselves into believing that they can actually defeat God and keep Christ from returning. But they are wrong. They're wrong. Because he comes back and they're tossed into, I don't mean that flippantly, casually, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Scripture makes it clear, and we'll see some of this next week, that there, are, there is at this present time two aspects of hell. There is what Scripture refers to, refers to as Hades, that, that part of hell where people who die even now without a relationship with God, the place where they go to, Right now, it is not a good place. It is a place of torment. It is a place uh, where, where we found the rich young ruler in, in Jesus' story in the gospel accounts, or the rich ruler. And there is the lake of fire. 
as we'll see in chapter 20, Hades and those in it are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, but preceding them is the Antichrist and his false prophet. Christ returns, and as we'll see next week, he establishes his kingdom, and we'll see all the exciting aspects of it. But if you want to wrap it up, you want to put it, put it in a package and summarize it, as we sometimes like to do, the big picture biblical principle Revelation 19, 11 through 21 looks like this. It is a record of the magnificent description of Christ and his army and the magnificent destruction of Antichrist and his army. In, in, that, in those first verses from 11 on down through 14, what a, what a magnificent description of Christ and all these names and all these attributes and, and the way he's clothed and what he looks like, this beautiful description of Christ and his army, you and, and me and other followers of Jesus through the ages. And the latter half, moving to the end of that chapter, is this beautiful destruction of the Antichrist and his army. Because Beautiful because it brings an end to unrighteousness and injustice and and poverty and and inequity and and all the things that are bad about this world that are as a result of being under the sin curse. All of them come to an end as Christ establishes his kingdom and rules on this earth. Timing is everything. Having this information in the proper timing is everything. Let me give you a little quick application of this, uh, this return of Christ and the timing of this uh, for our lives and what it means for us today. Real quickly, uh, here's what the return of Christ means to us. First, the return of Christ is our expectation. Uh, This has been it. For for the church, for 2,000 years, uh, the church has been expecting the return of Christ. And, and, and well, we should. We should live in a state. Can I ask you that question? I mean, you don't have to answer that. But do you live in a state of expectancy? The idea that, that at any moment he could, he could break through and he could call us up and he could establish uh, his righteousness. To live in that expectancy, it changes my attitude. I'll tell you, it does. It changes the way I see things. And to live in a state of expectancy. I really would encourage you to think along those lines. And not only is, is it our expectation, but the return of Christ is also our, the church's, motivation. Man, for 2,000 years, this has been what has gotten us up out of bed in the morning and, and pushed us on towards bringing God glory. And, and it started, listen, way back when, when Jesus left this earth the, the first time, way back at the beginning of, of the book of Acts, in Acts uh, chapter 1, we find these words, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and watch this, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? It's it's a funny scene to me. Why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, here it is, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Let, let Let me... Put it in today's vernacular. The angels that appeared before. I mean, you can just see them. They're all standing there just, oh, that is so cool. Look at, there goes, there goes Messiah. There goes, there goes Jesus. That is awesome. They're just standing, you know. They're guys. This is what they're guys, what, what are you doing? Okay, you just saw him go. He's coming back again in like manner. I, I think he told you something. Dude, something about a great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them every command you, Lord, I'm with you to the very end of the age. I think he said something about that. Let's go. Chop, chop. Get with it. That's really, that's what they're saying. And, and you know what the funny thing is? They did it. 
they went down off of that mountain and, and, and they come hell or high water, Katie bar the door, they went and told the world about Jesus. It's still astounding historically. In less than a hundred years, the, those original little band of disciples... In less than a hundred years, with no modern means of communication or transportation or computers or internet or, or, or cell phones or, or video screens or anything else, in less than a hundred years, they evangelized. They took the message of Jesus to the entire known world. Why? I think it's because of that very thing right there. The motivation but with, with the idea that he's coming back. And they didn't know when it was going to be. We better get busy. Wow. What if we still operate in that same premise? Oh, he's coming back. <laughs> I better get motivated to get busy. It's, it's our motivation to do what we do. Finally, r- real quickly, uh, it, the return of Christ is also, man, it's our celebration, folks. It is our celebration. Some of y'all already been amen in some this morning, just at the very, very thought of that. Listen, life is hard at times, is it not? Would anybody argue that life is not hard at times? Life is tough. Life is difficult. Life stinks at times. But you and I have the assurance that one day he is going to break through those clouds and he's going to bring an end to all this mess that mankind has been able to make of the world. And he's going to establish a kingdom in righteousness and justice filled with joy and peace And that is reason to celebrate, ladies and gentlemen. Now, here's the question that I leave you with. Those original little band of disciples, having received that information, having seen him go, and having been given the promise that he would come back again, they went down and changed the world. What are you and I going to do with that information? Timing is everything. Knowing that Christ was returning now before he does means everything to us. And it means everything to those who don't know yet that he's coming back. What are we going to do with that knowledge that he is coming back? What an exciting time. You know, the Bible is filled with promises of Christ's return and of the establishment of his kingdom on earth. And today in Revelation chapter 19, we've seen that not only is he coming back, but he's bringing us, the church, with him when he comes. The carnage of the final battle will be horrific as Christ puts down the rebellion of the godless and puts the Antichrist and his false prophet in their rightful place, the lake of fire. I'm so glad I serve a God who is able to bring an end to immortality and injustice and establish His kingdom of righteousness and peace. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you.
Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. This question uh, looks like this. What does the Bible say about, is there any such thing as an unforgivable or unpardonable sin? Uh, a lot of people have asked that question through the years, and uh, that's one of the ones we got as a Q&A. Is there any such thing as an unforgivable sin? Well, uh, biblically, the short answer is yes. Let's see if we can explain uh, what that is. The, the idea of unforgivable and unpardonable sin comes from um, Ma- primarily Matthew chapter 12, also in Mark as uh, the parallel uh, companion passage to that. But in Matthew chapter 12, we find this. Then they brought him, him being Jesus in this context, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now, the son of David was an Old Testament um, uh, phrase for the Messiah. It was one of the names that was given in the Old Testament for the coming Christ, the Messiah that would come. Could this be the son of David? Look what he just did. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, which was a, a, a phrase for Satan. It's only by Beelzebul that he does that. It's the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. Now, watch this. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Now, let me just stop right here and just say, let me paraphrase what Jesus said in response to what the Pharisees said. Well, that's stupid. Why would a demon drive out a demon? That's what Jesus said. That doesn't even make sense. Y'all's argument doesn't even make sense. Then watch what he says. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever, by by the way, again, speaks to the exclusivity of Jesus. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin uh, uh, and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What's going on there? Well, uh, you see the context, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious guys say, oh, he's, he's cast them out by said They wouldn't give, give credit. Here's the point. Here's, let me just try and cut to the chase because I've taken longer this morning than I intended to do. Um, I, I don't have time to run through all of the verses, but Scripture makes it very clear that a person comes to salvation. They come, uh, they receive forgiveness as God works in their life, as the Holy Spirit comes and works in your life. Some of you have heard me say many times, no one just decides I'm going to get saved. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Uh, You may be involved, and I believe that you are in that process, but it's because God's Spirit comes and He works in our lives, and He brings us to a place of conviction, and He brings us to a place of 
of believing in him. The Pharisees, quite frankly, simply would not do that. They would not acknowledge that the work that was going on was actually the work of God. And and the Holy Spirit was moving and working. And so what were they doing? They were rejecting the Holy Spirit. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the unpardonable sin. It is to deny that the Holy Spirit is working. And the reason it's unpardonable is because you can't be forgiven if you don't want to be forgiven. You can't be forgiven if you don't acknowledge that you need forgiveness. The Pharisees were unwilling to do that. That's why he says if somebody, if somebody blasphemes the Son of God, that will be forgiven. I've known many people that were not believers that, that would say to you, Jesus is not God. That, in essence, is rejecting. But later in their lives, uh, Josh McDowell would, would be an example. Simon Greenleaf, uh, the, the great scholar C.S. Lewis. All of them would be people that would have said Jesus was just a man. He wasn't God. But when the Spirit came and worked in their life and they came to a place of believing, they acknowledged him as Christ. So their sins are forgiven. It really comes down to a matter of belief. John chapter 3, verse 18, we find this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Watch this. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Your sins simply aren't forgiven because you refuse to believe that they can be forgiven, that God sent his Son to pay a price that you might receive forgiveness. And then finally in verse 36 of that same chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's good news. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Wrath for our sin. Forgiveness is possible for any person who would believe, but it requires that we acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit, recognize His work, and receive Christ as our Savior. That's Q&A for today.